The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by my good friend Chang Li who is director and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's John L. Thornton China Center. He is, I have to say now, a prolific writer, and his most recent book is The Power of Ideas, The Rising Influence of Thinkers and Think Tanks in China. Why this book and why now? Why now? Because uh, China put the development of think tank as national strategy since Xi Jinping came to power. And, uh, so five years ago, this five was years announced. Ago, and um, um, of course, that uh, his predecessor, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, also uh, talk about the value of the think tanks. If you look at the past 30 years uh, since Mao and them, of course, Mao did not pay attention to think tanks. The major decisions, like the launch of the Cultural Revolution and uh, uh, the, the Great Leap Forward, all by himself, there's no need to ask a think tank. Now, Deng Xiaoping uh, start to uh, value the role of intellectuals, but um, he hardly you know, listen to think tanks. He would rather to listen to his own daughters and uh, get advice, not so much by think tanks, maybe just the one or two um, uh, you know, intellectuals. But uh, since Jiang Zemin, you can see that um, uh, he's surrounded by some of the uh, intellectuals, including Wang Funing, who now actually Power Bureau member. And uh, the idea of a three represents, actually, uh, according to most people, uh, also uh, uh, you know, contributed by uh, Wang Funing. And uh, at that time, is a law professor uh, and dean uh, at the Fudan University, later moved to uh, the Central Committee, become the director well, of He studied Supreme. in the United States, too. He studied at Berkeley, uh, Iowa, uh, University of Michigan and uh, as a visiting scholar and uh, uh, he uh, his major in his undergraduate years actually is French but uh, he could speak English he really have read a lot now uh, under Hu Jintao you see the idea of the harmonious society and uh, etc these uh, and also more balanced regional development he heavily relied on his, his people in the central party school so you see the phenomenon but uh, until Xi Jinping became top leader, think tanks became a national development strategy. You see what the Chinese called think tank fever. Now, of course, that in the United States, people are very cynical. To a certain extent, people in China are also very cynical. They think that these think tanks only the, uh, the, you know, um, speak for the voice of the uh, Chinese government and just uh, uh, not so much about the uh, for policy discourse, but only just uh, to justify the government policy. And, uh, and also they think that's a tight control by the Chinese government, or you have more uh, uh, tanks rather than sinkers, or there's not so much about sinking, just only about the tanks. This is what the Chinese call the Yu Ku, Wu Zi, the Chinese call Zi Ku, or, or too much uh, uh, you know, uh, development of these tanks, but there's no really solid thinking. These criticisms all have validity, but we forget the, the important fact that uh, this is an important window for outside the world to understand what's going on in China and how to see the complicated relationship between uh, decision makers, 
and their advisors, and also the role of intellectuals, not completely, you know, it's just a speaking voice, but rather actually there's some serious debate. Also, there's a... Well, should we think about think tanks in China the way we think about think tanks in the United States? Well, um, certainly, United States, we see um, the three groups. One is the government-sponsored think tank, like work for the policy planning. I mean, uh, this is a small number. Uh, the, the, another one is I mean, more something like CNA or RAND. Correct, correct. But also, there's the internal, there's the policy planning uh, staff, there's various right. departments. Uh, we don't uh, really think of the, them as think tanks. So, policy planning in the State Department? Well, uh, the, an I, internal think tank. Uh, but in reality, they play the same role. Right. I mean, to pr- uh, strategic planning. Strategic planning, and, uh, and etc. Uh, but of course, the majority of the U.S. think tanks are privately. Sponsored. Uh, not all of them are independent. Some of them have a clear agenda. Some of them sponsored by, you know, uh, more affiliated with uh, one party rather than the other. But uh, because of the bipartisanship uh, in the United States, so some of the think tank pursue their in- in- independence or neutrality, such as the CSIS, Brookings, and the Carnegie to a certain extent. But of course, there are some think tanks that have strong, um, you know, uh, kind of a tendency to support one party like American uh, Center for American Progress for Democratic Party or you know, Heritage or AIE for a Republican Party. But uh, there's a, a lot of them, uh, like uh, uh, Brookings, uh, Carnegie, CSIS, and they are more independent. And at least they do not want to see as just one, uh, only support one party position. But there's also a lot of think tanks in the universities, like uh, Hoover Institute, I mean, at uh, Stanford, like uh, several mini centers at Harvard and etc. So this is US. But in China, it's a similar. Uh, there's a government, the large number of them, like the CAS, uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and local branches. Uh, there's some new think tanks, like CCIE, focus on economic matters. There are some of the private think tanks, like the Pangu uh, think tank or Taihe think tank, we just uh, uh, visited there, and they actually develop very fast. And also, there's a, um, um, there's a, uh, this is already mentioned about the majority of the government, but there's some private think tanks start to emerge. Some of them, like Tianzi, are actually really independent. They're already cr- very critical of some of government policy. And there's a lot of university think tanks, but there's some ambiguities that some of them are more consultant firms or even kind of associations, but they're also called think tank. So the idea of independence is not that strong, but you do see the growing diversity and the number increase significantly. Uh, according to uh, UPenn's study, uh, US has the largest number of think tanks, but China is the second. Uh, so, so it's very close to, uh, to the United States. But the important thing is Chinese government puts a lot of resources to think tank development. And the private sector and also the state-owned enterprises start to contribute money to the think tank development. They think think tanks will serve China's rise on the global stage and will uh, make the policy more um, rational or more scientific. Are any really independent of government? I think, uh, uh, first of all, now even those with government, you have different views. For example, under Hu Yaobang in the 1980s, Central Party School become very liberal force right. for new ideas. Under Zhao Ziyang, you see that the Yan Jiaqi in the political science department, the class, has become a 
uh, leading voice for reform. This is even within government, you have some different voices. But now, even within the Chinese think tanks, you cannot say they speak the same voice. These scholars have different views. And uh, sometimes they also critical. But can they put forth a view that is unacceptable to government? Well, there's some think tank, like a think uh, Tianzhe, like a Siyuan, it's an uh, established late 1980s. They actually got some trouble from the government. And uh, also, to a certain extent, there's some uh, think tanks that pro uh, promote human rights and, uh, uh, or legal development. Also got some of the, of the trouble, like Xu uh, Ziyong's think tank. Uh, got got, got uh, yeah, closed down. Closed down. But uh, some of them still survive, and, but they have difficulties. Well, that actually points to the, the, one of the questions I have. You have a wonderful chapter <clears throat> on Huwei Fang. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's called, your title tells actually the whole story, which is fighting for a constitutional China through public enlightenment and legal professionalism. And you start with a description of a meeting you attended at Beida in the fall of 2011. And the participants, you say, were directly critical of the Chinese Communist Party because it overly participated in the legal system. It was too intrusive in the, in the legal system. The Zheng Fawei really caused a lot of problems, and people were very explicit. And could that meeting occur today? Um, probably less, less uh, um, in a way you do see the tightening political control, but the, what the happened for He Weifang was just, um, it's uh, five years ago or four years ago, I forgot exactly time, I think it's five years ago. And uh, when I edited that book, this is based on his writing, uh, this is about the 2010 to 2011, and uh, in that book he basically challenged three people. Uh, uh, Wang Lijun, the police chief in Chongqing, yeah. uh, Bo Xilai, the party chief in Chongqing, and uh, Zhou Yongkang as the person in charge of police in the nationwide, as a standing, uh, later become standing committee member. So how could you imagine that could happen uh, in a country uh, so tightly controlled? He Weifang now also faces a lot of criticism, a lot of censorship, but he still has his Weibo. He, he still has a WeChat account and uh, still remain a very influential figure. And uh, I may not necessarily agree with everything he said, but the fact that he's still a professor at the Beida tells us a lot. Now, certainly that the, the, the meeting- really, He's been significantly restricted. Correct. And I think that meeting from 2011, I think a fair conclusion is to say it would be highly unlikely that it could occur today. But the, uh, uh, I probably agree with you, but the, let me add one more thing. The, the sentiment in the intellectual discourse is still similar. It's still quite open, maybe uh, hidden, maybe not so open, and uh, so, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it happened to Beida. But uh, this kind of sentiment is not gone yet. And uh, maybe there's some college students uh, become very critical about, the, uh, about the, the more liberal views because of nationalism, because of some other views. But I think the mainstream legal professions, more or less, still share the sentiment that I experienced uh, uh, this four or five years ago uh, when I uh, started to write my introductory chapter. Hmm. How will the 19th Party Congress affect the role of think tanks in China? Well, What's your expectation that after you know, October 25th, when it ends, 
Uh, well, there's uh, several interesting ways. First of all, you you may see, uh, um, uh, in addition to Wang Funing, maybe uh, a couple of more leaders made their career in think tanks, early uh, their career, uh, and the top leadership. Uh, that including Liu He, uh, maybe Xie Fuzhan, and uh, on the Politburo. On the Politburo, and uh, Wang Funing may even have a chance to become a Politburo Standing Committee member. I would say 50-50, we do not know. So that would be the first time a think tank uh, a scholar. Uh, of course, he has also had a political career, but by and large, he's a scholar, and he worked in the think tank almost his entire uh, career and went to the top leadership, this is one thing. Second one, uh, actually it's not just the 19th Party Congress, 18th Party Congress already acknowledged the importance of think tank. A couple of years later, Xi Jinping enhanced that to national strategy. So in addition, what I said, the revolving door to have more people uh, from the think tank recruit to the government, uh, this is very symbolic, it's mm -hmm. still a small number. But uh, if these leaders uh, enter the uh, power bureau, or one, uh, one person even at the Power Standing Committee, it's entirely symbolic. Mm -hmm. It will leave the door open. And of course, still will be slow, not like in the US, uh, become a, a big uh, uh, source of the, uh, the leadership recruitment after the, uh, the new president in White House. But uh, China will be slow. But on the other hand, uh, you will see that uh, these think tanks heavily involved in policy discourse. You know, you look at the one belt, one road, you look at the idea of AIB. Of course, this is Xi Jinping's uh, foreign policy uh, kind of agenda, but uh, also he got uh, some of the help from the think tank. And he will continue uh, to ha have the advice from think tank to evaluate some of the policies. That actually is, is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And uh, so long he continued to emphasize uh, think tank development. Uh, some of the criticism that he is anti-intellectual will have some uh, problem to see that contradiction. Mm -hmm. If he, Wang Hunin went on the standing committee, would that be the first time a Western-educated person was placed on the standing committee? Obviously, well, that we've had some educated in the Soviet Union, uh, the former Soviet Union, and in North Korea. That's correct. Uh, and uh, that's correct. In the Power Bureau standing committee, or the Power Bureau, you already have uh, uh, right. some of the people um, uh, 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 you know, the definition is Western educated or, or the Chinese called retainees. Definition is a study abroad, uh, as a visiting scholar, or as a um, degree candidate for at least uh, one year. So he fulfilled that uh, uh, that requirement. And uh, Liu He actually got his uh, uh, MPA degree from Harvard. Right. So that's a degree holder. Yeah. Right. The book is remarkably optimistic, given the perception of most Western scholars and academics about this tightening in China and kind of less free academic discourse, less opportunity for new ideas. Why are you such an optimist? Well, because I don't, uh, I think that the China is a, uh, is a contradiction, is a paradox of hope and fear. I mean, and also I should say, uh, the past three decades is quite remarkable. We see, we witness China's economic miracle. I, I don't think that uh, this kind of um, incredible change occur in intellectual vacuum. And also, sometimes there's uh, no correlation between intellectual dyna dynamic thinking with the nature of the political system. In the worst of the uh, situation, in most repressive 
uh, regime sometimes uh, produce the, the brilliant thinkers. And uh, this is actually also happening in China. But the outside world did not know much, not appreciate that the diversity, that the contradiction happening in China. Now, first of all, I should make it clear. I do see the tightening political control. I do see that my friends and a lot of independent thinkers, they are facing some difficulties. But also I want to bring the other side of the story. These thinkers are still working on their very important project. And also you look at the disciplines like political science, economics, sociology, and especially sociology and the law, I just mentioned, these are produced things. But also women's studies, youth studies, sexuality studies, really have some uh, very thoughtful, uh, uh, really uh, uh, well-researched um, uh, uh, scholars emerge. So that story we should not easily uh, overlook. I think this discussion has given the listeners a flavor of Lee Chung's new book, The Power of Ideas, The Rising Influence of Thinkers and Think Tanks in China. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, he is a director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, so I have been especially polite. Well, I'm very honored to be part, uh, part of this wonderful organization in U.S.-China Relations. Thanks.